Hi, this is Emma Sutherland. Join us on FX Medicine next week, where I'll be talking to naturopath Rachel Arthur about her experience in the industry. Plus, we'll be doing a deep dive into the nutrient zinc. Subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app and follow us on social media to make sure you never miss an episode. This is FX Medicine, bringing you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional and complementary medicine. I'm Dr. Michelle Woolhouse, and today we're going to discuss the impacts of negative body image, which is much more prevalent than you might think. In 2017, a survey was done by the Butterfly Foundation. More than 43% of Australians are highly concerned about their body image. Additionally, over a million Australians today are experiencing an eating disorder, but only a third are getting help. Joining us on the line today is Dr. Gemma Sharp, a clinical psychologist who specialises in the treatment of eating disorders and body dysmorphic disorder. She is founder and leader of the Body Image Research Unit at the Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre in Melbourne, where she's a senior research fellow. Gemma and her team focus on understanding the cause of and developing novel treatments for body image related disorders. Hi Gemma, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, it's brilliant to be with you. I'm really excited about this discussion because it's such an important one. So I just wanted to start really with the basics. What is body image and how how's it formed in our psyche? It's a great question because I think people have a lot of assumptions around what body image means, but it, it's far more complicated than people give it credit for. So it's actually our thoughts feelings and behaviours connected with our body. It's not just how our body looks, it's everything about it and our perceptions Mm. of it. And it has a great impact on how we view ourselves overall. So when I ask people about how they um, value themselves, what are the different facets of themselves, body image inevitably comes up. So Mm. it is a core part of our identity. And how how is it formed? Like what what are the factors that allow it to form? Does it form, you know, in that really infantile stage, you know, at the ages of two or three or before we're seven Mm. years old? Like do we know about how and when it gets formed or is it ever evolving? It, we are born with a sense of body image. We don't know it <laughs> when we're first born. Um, but even as young as two and three, we have a sense of how our body moves throughout space and how it interacts with others. And then, of course, um, little children get compliments about how they look or comments. Mm. And so it starts really, really young. And, and as you said, it does evolve over time because our bodies evolve over time. But certainly it's with us all the way through our lives. Mm. Yeah, it's such an important issue. I also, again, just to shape the the conversation, I wanted to get some of the definitions kind of clear because sure. often it's it it's interchange between like an eating disorder and disordered eating. Tell us about yeah. that. Like, is there a difference? 
There is. And I, I can understand why people might be confused. Again, we just use them interchangeably. Mm. So uh, an eating disorder is where someone meets our diagnostic criteria for that particular disorder. And there's there's quite a few different types. So people would, of course, be aware of anorexia and bulimia, probably binge eating disorder to, to a lesser extent. But I, I think that is one that we're recognizing more and more. And mm. uh, there's also what we call OSFED, which is other specified feeding <laughs> yes. or eating disorder, which doesn't quite fit into that on some a of the other letter. categories. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then disordered eating is where it doesn't meet our clinical cutoff. So it's still problematic eating, but maybe it's not frequent enough or severe enough to meet the meet our diagnostic criteria, but it's still very much an issue. And I would stress that if there's anyone out there who who does meet that disordered eating criteria, that they should absolutely get help before it does start meeting diagnostic criteria. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost like a, a scale of problematic behaviour in, in a way. Is it, is exactly. That kind of, so yeah. it might be like a binge once a month or um, some uh, semi-restrictive eating practices. It certainly has a lot of body image concern in it um, mm. and it's better to uh, seek help early than not. Yeah, and that's a, that's a great point and we'll talk about where people get, you know, help and resources later on in the chat. But also mm-hmm. one of the things that I, when I was researching this and, and I think in our pre-podcast conversation is just how body image can actually kind of almost like pop up as a, an issue at various different stages of people's yes. lives, like things like pregnancy, you know, where... You know, I guess there's this, you know, that you're meant to feel fantastically vital through pregnancy, but <laughs> some women actually I, I feel think illusion challenged. Is correct, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it does not seem to be the norm that people feel fantastic in pregnancy. <laughs> moments of. But yeah, so, you know, pregnancy, breastfeeding, you know, there's so much pressure post having a baby about getting, mm. you know, the pre baby body back or, you know, in the media <laughs> or menopause, perimenopause, adolescence. Tell us about yes. how different key stages, you know, and, and because I think this is really important for practitioners to know, to really be almost um, alert to, to that and open up a discussion with patients with regards to that. Absolutely. Like I think you, you've hit so many great points there. I think I think practitioners are aware that body image concerns can creep up in adolescence. I think we've got that right. Mm. <laughs> That's, you know, that time of um, usually a lot of growth and development, uh, including brain development. Um, but I think uh, we tend to forget that our body is ever-changing and pregnancy is a time when a woman's body will go through radical changes, whereas <laughs> radical. She, her body might have stayed quite, quite the same for quite a while of her adult mm. life. And she's, she's growing a human being in there. Of course, her body's going to change. But as you said, there's all that societal pressure of this is the best time of your life. You have this pregnancy glow. But what if you're not feeling glowy? What if you're actually feeling a bit gross in your body? Who do you talk to about that? And I think there's a lot of stigma 
around saying that, hey, I'm really not enjoying how my body is changing right now. Um, it's even though I, I'm really appreciating growing a baby, um, I, I myself am dissatisfied. And then, as you said, there's all that pressure afterwards to just snap back to how you look before, which again is is completely unrealistic and perpetuated by media and society most often. And I think I think we need to. I suppose, move more towards a body acceptance approach after mm. pregnancy because uh, your body won't be the same because it has done an amazing thing of mm. growing a baby. Um, and that is very, very cool. And I suppose that's, that's why I'm always cool. about body function over form. I'm like, isn't that amazing? Yeah. You can grow a baby. Yeah, um, I love but, that. You know, body not function. everyone can say that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is a, a biological imperative. You need a womb and a couple of other little key components. Mm. But I think, you know, the point that sort of struck out for me when you said is like, where do we go to talk about that? Because I mean, I'm probably fall into that category of sort of feeling quite quite overwhelmed by the body changes of pregnancy. And mm. I really didn't feel like I could talk to to anyone about it. I, you know, I'm talking for the first time now, you know, in a way just reflecting back of how important it is to know where we can talk about these issues because it, it was actually quite full on for me, like the changes and the repeated, like how rapid those changes were. It was like, whoa, oh, exactly. I don't have time That's to catch up. The, the only other time is puberty when you're going through changes that fast Yeah, and everyone oh, expects wild. you to be a bit all over the shop then, but uh, yeah. no, pregnancy, you're meant to have it all together and just be like, <laughs> oh, yeah, great. And, of course, you know, you're not going to be able to maybe do all the self-care and things that you would normally do for your body because you're carrying a baby. Maybe it's really tough. Yeah, that's right. And menopause is another big one, I think. You yes. know, there's there's we live in a youth culture, we live in a pressurized kind of culture that says a woman's body needs to look a certain way. Mm. And then menopause hits and there's a whole raft of different physiological oh, changes. My goodness. And isn't you mm. know, if we don't talk enough about pregnancy, we don't talk at all about bodily <laughs> changes in menopause. Mm. Uh, I mean, I didn't even think menopause was really in people's consciousness until fairly recently. It would yeah. I mean, I suppose more mainstream rather than than medical professionals. I think agreed. It was sort of like, well, you just you just become older. <laughs> well, yeah. no, the the um the the cessation of menstruation really does have huge impacts on the body, and I think there's this, as you said, youth focused culture. So it's like, well, now I have this definitive sign that I am no yes. longer young, quote unquote, which oh. I don't believe in at all. I'm, you know, mm. you're as old as you think you are. Um, That's right. And I, I actually had a, a, a quote, I think it was Instagram or whatever, a 93 year old yogi. So she's a woman. I think she's in Florida, of course. You know, she said, I don't believe in age. I believe in energy. And I just thought that's just a great right. yeah, mantra it, to exactly. kind of think of. It, mm. It's so about outlook um, rather than the, you know, and the function, chronological as number said. that you have reached. Mm. I mean, we have postmenopausal women doing amazing things, running countries, um, yes. you know, completing marathons, oh. whatever yeah. they want to do. It's, I suppose it's the next life phase and what you want to achieve out of that. So I think in lots of ways we sort of think that this body image issue is actually a Western construct. Like, mm. but it, like, is this happening in other cultures? Like, is this happening in places like India or Africa or, you know, some of the other kind of things? Are we noticing changes, you know, through social media maybe or 
you know, the internet or sedentary behaviour, what's happening in other cultures or is this just mainly kind of a Western thing? It, it definitely does impact other cultures. I, I'm sad to say that our research really hasn't looked at other cultures enough and that's something we are addressing now and finding, oh, yes, this is not just a Western thing. Mm. Um, in fact, when we find that when people from these other countries like India and Africa, as you were saying, when they come to live in Western countries, their body image actually, uh, body image distress becomes worse because they're surrounded by all of these Western ideals and by Mm. virtue of their culture they are even further away from that than someone who say is western born and bred Um, so we've got this you know the perfect clear white skin bright eyes um, this this um, instagram look and if you're say for example from india you are you are never going to have that kind of look um Mm. and and so we know that with Western beauty ideals infiltrating these other countries, it is definitely promoting body image dissatisfaction and it's something that we need to investigate more. And I think it's it's worth us kind of as practitioners really, I guess, opening our hearts and minds to women or men of different cultures. And that kind of leads me on to the fact that we often think about body image as an issue that affects girls and women. But your research mm. tells us that that's not the case. Tell us about the fact that you know w- what's going on with men. Is this is this a rising issue of men? Has it always been there? How is it different for men? Um, it, it absolutely affects everyone. Anyone with a body can have a body image concern. <laughs> so people of all genders, and I'm glad we're finally moving this research away from just girls and women. It obviously started there and there's been brilliant research over probably the last couple of decades that has really shown that this is an issue. And I, you know, I, I credit all those early researchers in the 80s and 90s. Um, but I suppose it was more the 2010s that we're like, hey, th- what about men? Are they <laughs> always happy with how they feel in their bodies? And, of course, the answer was no. Mm. Um, and we're seeing a rise in eating disorders in men. So I suppose when body image concerns become very severe, coupled with those eating disordered behaviours, we see eating disorders in men. So we know that this is a growing issue for them. And unfortunately, a lot of our, I suppose, treatment and prevention programs are very much geared more towards the female audience. And so men are far less likely to reach out for help thinking that this is a a woman's issue. So I think it's very much underreported, the statistics we even do have. Um, I suppose what I will say is I do think it is experienced differently for women and men. I think women have generally always been valued for their appearance in society. I think that mm. goes back a very long time. Yeah, I don't think men always age, have you know? that. <laughs> exactly. Mm. Um, men tend to be more valued for their power and resources. I, I'm overgeneralizing here. I apologize. Of course, <laughs> of course but it, it does paint a cultural picture. I mean, I think yeah. it, 
it's 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 certainly not the way, and it's certainly not the way we want it to be in the future. And I think there's lots of activity, you know, the last ten years' explosion of of really putting gender on the on the table. But absolutely, and gender yeah. diverse groups as well. Like they're an, another group, and of course, there's lots in there: non-binary, transgender, intersex. Yeah. Um, but there's only a couple, um, and we know that they experience body image concerns at even higher rates. Um, because yeah. of this this um, gender dysphoria at times that they're experiencing. So I'm yeah. glad we're finally shining a light on these other groups and saying, hey, we know that you're struggling with your bodies too and we want to help. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a, I think it's just great to have a, some words around it too like so that we can start to open the conversation because body mm. image and poor mental health are actually connected, you know, through they the research so that you've done. So I'm just wondering if we know, is it a chicken or the egg kind of scenario? Does one lead to another or does, you know, how, how does it work? Do we know? Uh, it's a great question and I think it's very much a complex interplay that one feeds into the other. Like if I'm feeling anxious, I focus on my body. If I focus on my body, I'm feeling anxious. Mm. Uh, it lowers my mood. It makes me not want to go out, which makes me feel isolated. Mm. I feel judged when I go out by others because of my appearance. Like it's so, uh, there, there are just so many factors at play here, but you're mm. absolutely right. It's this bi-directional relationship with overall mental health and body image. So it is, I mean, I think for practitioners listening to this, like even if we've got a, I guess, a, I was going to say like a sniff of body image issues, like, you know, it really mm. is important from a prevention of, of mental health issues to to see whether we can support people differently with that and open a conversation. Absolutely. And I, I think... I feel like, I suppose from my own patients, like we don't ask about body image enough. Like say if someone has come to me for say OCD or depression or something like that, and I'll say, oh, and how's your body image? And they're like, oh, terrible. <laughs> but that's that's not their primary presentation. Yeah. But um, I think if if any health professional asked, they would probably get a, yeah, it's not great answer yeah. for, for people's sense of body image. And I think, I mean, it's like it's like so many things. Like if you go back to, you know, early psychiatry, you know, Jung would say like, you know, everybody comes with a story that's never been shared, you know, in their, mm. in their psyche. And so as we speak about these and as we share, you know, there's that shared humanity, which is also part of the healing. So, Absolutely. And I think we as health professionals own our own body image journeys as well. Um, yeah. Who, who of us can say that we are satisfied all the time? <laughs> That's right. But your research also, you know, has explored personality traits on body image and, and sure. sort of, you know, made the kind of connection. Tell us a little bit about which kind of personality traits kind of affect us more. Is there something we could look out for or support people through or... Oh, I mean, this is this is such a complicated issue because if, if we think body image is complicated, personality is even more complicated. <laughs> um, and I have a great PhD student looking at this at the moment. I hope by the end of her PhD, I'll be able to answer this question even better. <laughs> um, so what we tend to find, I suppose there's kind of two major traits that we talk about in uh, in eating disorder space or body image space. And the first is perfectionism. Um, yep. We know that perfectionism can actually be really beneficial sometimes, um, you know, helps us get good grades at school, get promoted at work, um, yeah. throw awesome parties, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> um, but 
sometimes every it can attention get into to that detail. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you want you want that in a surgeon, don't you? You yes, don't want someone absolutely. who's a bit slapdash. Um, <laughs> Uh, so it, it can be really helpful, but it can definitely go into that pathological realm pretty easily. Mm. And when focused on the body, which we know is inherently imperfect because inherently. it is our body, <laughs> yep. then that's that's when it's an issue. So um, sort of that appearance-oriented perfectionism is, is mm. quite problematic. And the other is neuroticism, um, going yes. back to our sort of five-factor model of personality. Um, if your listeners have heard of that, check it out if you haven't. Um, so yes, being, I suppose, being a bit more intense about things like neuroticism covers a range of behaviors. So I suppose my PhD student is drilling down on that a bit more, um, which I'm, I'm pretty interested in. Um, so I think that's a really evolving space. And I think at the moment, our treatments don't take into account enough individual personality traits. We mm. tend to sort of deliver the same kind of treatment irrespective. Perfectionism is something we tend to address a bit better. But in terms of other things uh, like temperament and personality, we don't do such a great job at the moment. Yeah, they're trickier. Well, that kind of they leads really me are. into, yeah, it's like we've got personality traits and, you know, we've family of origin. But one of the big issues that's changed over the last decade is, of course, social media and its impact. Yes. You know, channels such as Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, you know, I mean, and it's very <laughs> difficult for parents, particularly after these lockdowns. You know, it, it's almost like the, the the landscape has changed dramatically. Um, mm. I know myself, you know, we, we recognise that, you know, from a social perspective, um, we needed to loosen the reins, you know, of our one hour a day kind of thing um, through lockdown. <laughs> yes, more and, like 23 uh, hours a day during lockdown. <laughs> yeah, and the horses definitely bolted. So tell yes. us about the research for social media and how much of an impact do we know that it's happening on um, body image? Yeah, so it's such an interesting space, um, media impact. So we we knew that media was having an impact decades ago, like movie clips, um, music clips, uh, magazines, things like that. But now social media has really changed the the media landscape even more because it's so interactive. You're part of it. Um, Mm. For example, TV shows and magazines you just sort of read and watched. You weren't really a part of it, but... Um, because social media is so interactive, there is the chance for more harm, unfortunately, but also more good too. I think mm. uh, social media gets a bad rap sometimes. Um, I think it does connect people who who may not have a community. So I think we shouldn't forget that. Uh, in terms of social media's impacts, so we know that it's not necessarily the amount of time young people spend on there. So so, you know, obviously I don't want your listeners thinking, oh, 24 hours a day is fine. But um, <laughs> if, if your young person is spending quite a bit of time on there, it's okay. It's it's more the, the activities which they are participating in that have the potential for for harm to their body image. And these tend to be more of the photo-based activities. So taking selfies, editing selfies, posting them, looking at other people's selfies and photos. So it's really the images that... Um, that have the most powerful impact on body image. And if we think back to, say, magazine covers and things like that, it's a little bit like that, isn't it? Um, yeah. Except now we all have smartphones and can edit our own photos. And so now we have that technology to use on ourselves. 
Yeah, and I guess it's the normalisation of that, like the normalisation of beauty pressures, you know, like we were speaking to our daughters about unrealistic beauty ideals, you know, and the impact of them. Like, yeah, 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 you know, like we know that they're (laughs) filtered and whatever, but I know when I look at a filtered image of myself, you know, if I've got a filter over the top, I'm like, wow, that looks that looks better. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> away it's that my... classic before and after. That, that, that's the basis <laughs> like, of wow. cosmetic surgery. It, yeah. <laughs> the before is always pathologised and the after is glorified. It's really oh, challenging. Right. So it's, it's a, um, you know, it's challenging, like even for a 50, you know, 49-year-old oh. woman, like, you know, to, to have these kind of things goes, yeah, I mean, for young teenagers, like that's what they actually at times aspire to. So because mm. what I was looking at through the lockdown was just this because in the um, News GP there were coming reports of the Royal Children's Hospital, you know, emergency admission rates for things like, you know, self-harm and body mm. image issues and eating disorders yes. in teens due to the lockdown. Do we know much about that yet? Like is this... Do we think that this is going to be an ongoing trend? What are we doing about, you know, this recent imposition that happened that is almost kind of thrown all of the cracks open? It's a, yes, I think we're still managing this. Um, mm. I, I can't see, maybe I'm cynical, um, I can't see things getting better quickly um, you're absolutely right that it showed that we didn't have enough workforce in this space yeah. and this isn't something that's addressed quickly either. It takes time to train people and build up the workforce. So we know that wait lists are longer than 12 months for specialised eating disorder services and things like that. It's, you know, I had to close my books because I just couldn't take anyone else on. So um I'll be very interested to see what happens with this cohort of young people. I'm sure they'll be the most studied cohort of young people ever um, because they've lived through a pandemic at that particular time of their lives. Mm. Um, I do know that particularly with young people, the earlier the intervention in the eating disorder realm, the better. We tend to actually have very good outcomes um, with adolescents and family-based therapy uh, for eating disorders. But when they, you know, I don't, um, I don't mean to uh, be, I suppose, a Debbie Downer or anything like that. But um, when it comes to people who are in their sort of twenties, thirties, forties, if they're coming to treatment for the first time, we tend to not have as good outcomes. It doesn't mean they shouldn't come, but mm. just the earlier someone can get into treatment, the better. Particularly as a family unit as well, we just know mm. that that works brilliantly rather than individual therapy later on. And is there something we should be, you know, is there a certain language we should be using around, you know, ideas of body image or food or, you know, um, exercise, for example, (laughs) like as a lot of our practitioners are going to be parents as well, like is there something that we can do from a prevention or even as family members, like, you know, is there something... Mm that we know that can be really helpful? Yeah, we we know that um, people's families are very influential in how young people form a sense of their bodies. Um, Obviously, their peers become quite important later on, but certainly at those earliest stages, it's parents and siblings and grandparents, whoever's around. Um, 
And I think uh, first up, if you have your own body image concerns as a, a parent or carer, please go see someone because even you talking about your own body does impact how the young person around you looks at theirs. Even if you're not talking to them directly, they really pick mm. up on how bodies are talked about. If you're on any kind of diet or anything like that, please don't mention it in front of the young person. So I suppose, yeah, sorting out your own sense of body image is is a really good thing. In terms of how you talk to them about their own body, if you can avoid, I suppose, more appearance or weight-based conversations, that's really, really, really helpful because they tend to never really go that well. Yeah. Um, I know some people will say, well, can't you compliment someone if they're looking good? And I, you know, of course, of course you can do that. But I would rather hear that kind of compliment mixed in with, oh, aren't you good at tennis? Or wasn't that a kind thing you did for your brother? Like mm. I, it needs to be mixed in with compliments about the person's character, uh, what they do well, Um I suppose it comes back to, you know, how little girls are always told, don't you look pretty? And little boys yeah. are like, oh, don't you play with trucks well? Um, <laughs> it, it's it's yep. readdressing that, really. It's like complimenting people for what they do mm. rather than what they look like. So I think it's just, I suppose, treating young people like whole people from the start and not really having those appearance-based conversations very often and talking about other people as well like I you know I hear this oh isn't isn't she a bigger person or something like that even talking about someone else just don't yeah. talk about people's body shapes full stop that's right I think I mean th I think that's a really great thing and, and even if we're picking up our unconscious bias because I think mm. as a culture we're so we've been so ingrained about body image and what we look towards the outside world, you know, so mm. even picking it up in yourself to go, wow, I just, I, I actually identified that person as a big person, but, you know, and also noticing how much we do that with women and not men or et cetera, et cetera. Yes. So I think noticing <laughs> the differences that we do do, even just our own unconscious bias can be so supportive, but that actually leads me to orthorexia nervosa. Sure. And so I've been fascinated with this, you know, I've been working in integrative medicine for 20 years and obviously been prescribing, you know, different nutritional interventions and diets and being really conscious of, of the aspect of orthorexia nervosa, which came in when people had really, fin like I had a group of people that I struggled to, to get them to adhere to a diet and then others would be like, yep, I'm on. Here you go, what, 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 what food do you want me to restrict? I'm there, I'm done. Like, yep, I'll say no to this. And, you know, it's like, whoa. Okay. And also the research shows that orthorexia nervosa or those kind of issues are actually much more prevalent. Like in one study it showed 68% of dietetic students uh, had aspects of orthorexia, you know. and Isn't that a worry? <laughs> yeah, dietitians had a twofold increase in eating disorders as compared yeah. to control and you know, so I've, what I've, are they saying to their clients and patients? Yeah, worry. and nat naturopaths and nutritionists, you know, would would fall into that, and in personal trainers and etc. tend to have more of an inclination towards an unhealthy relationship to food. And when we're prescribing mm. that, you know, do we know enough about that? Is there any support for people that are working in the diet industry, diet, weight loss, health industry, etc., that we can kind of shine a light on and see whether we can support that because obviously 
that's an issue for people coming for support as well. It really is. Um, I think orthorexia nervosa is so interesting. Um, it, it's not in our diagnostic and statistical mm. manuals yet. I'm not sure if it'll make it into the next iteration. I'll be interested <laughs> to see. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I, I suppose oh, there's this debate, is it like, is orthorexia nervosa just anorexia by another name? Mm. You know, I just, yeah, <laughs> it's it's sort of the socially acceptable eating disorder, which I don't like one bit mm. because it's still very harmful. Um, and uh, as you said, there does seem to be a higher incidence in certain types of professionals who tend to encounter people with eating disorders, which is a real struggle. Mm. Um, I mean, I think... Potentially, potentially programs, for example, dietetic programs at university should be maybe screening for these behaviours before permitting people into these programs, not excluding them, of course. However, maybe saying that perhaps um, they could benefit from seeing a psychologist in conjunction with conducting the program um, just to make sure that they are not in, unintentionally passing on any harmful messages to their clients. And it's, I suppose... Um, I was speaking to a group of dietitians last year and I realised that unlike psychologists, they don't have a peer consultation. They don't really talk with other dietitians very much. At least that was my understanding from the my interactions with them. And I think um, it would be very hard for a dietitian to say to another dietitian, I think I'm a bit worried about my eating behaviours because they're meant to have it all together because that's their mm. dietitians, their personal trainers. They're meant to be the experts in this. So it would be quite shameful, I think. And I guess it's similar to psychologists that have anxiety in the breakdown, you know, because often... I, you I'm, know I'm, what? I'm, I've never met a psychologist without anxiety. I think it's part <laughs> of the job description. <laughs> but I guess we, we do naturally get attracted to what we feel is kind of our most, um, you know, pertinent sort of relationship in in many ways so it's kind of a natural as as you were saying like a psychologist whose anxiety is is maybe escalating they would talk to another psychologist they might Mm. be seeing a psychologist themselves in fact a lot a lot of people in the field do and I think that's really really helpful and I think if other uh, professions were to have that where they could talk honestly to each other about struggles that they're having within themselves that might be impacting their clients, all the better. I think that's a, a fantastic idea because, I mean, I know myself as an integrative GP, there'd be sometimes when I did see, you know, a patient that was, you know, really adhering to a diet in, in such sort of vigour and mm. I'd actually question myself and think, why can't I do that? They seem to be able to do it so easily. Or, you know, whatever. I mean, we take we you take know what? Our... I'm glad you can't. That's really good. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, I guess we're, we're all human and we share this human journey. And so, you know, really well, what we're exactly. suggesting we're is to... Going to identify or not identify with our patients and clients to some extent. You know, we can't leave as you said, our human side out of the mm. out of the clinic room, it's always there. That's right. And I think, you know, encouraging people to speak about it, you know, to, to our patients but also to ourselves, like we become a kind of mirror, you know, of mm. the people that come into our clinic. It's just remarkable how much we share our humanity with, with other people, even with Absolutely. vastly different it, backgrounds. It makes you the best practitioner you can be. It's why you're not a robot. Yeah, that's right. 
talking of robots, what a beautiful segue <laughs> and completely unplanned. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I can't imagine what you're about to ask me. So Gemma is such an innovative psychologist, probably one of the oh, most thank you. innovative in Australia, has created this incredible resource. Tell us about what you've created. Tell us about Kit. Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk about my chatbot child, Kit. I'm super <laughs> proud of Kit. Um, my, uh, and thank you so much for the, the lovely um innovation comments there. I really appreciate that because I think in mental health, there's there's so much demand and so few of us that innovations are absolutely crucial and the pandemic really pushed that along. And, and Kit was launched um, in November 2020. Um, Kit's a chatbot, uh, which is a computer program that has human-like conversations. And um, Kit focuses on teaching, I suppose, two types of evidence-based body image skills, um, the first being basic education around what body image is, what it isn't, what to look out for in yourself and others, what treatments are available, that kind of stuff. So the, the nuts and bolts there. Uh, but Kit also has 19 different uh, coping skills that I would routinely teach in my practice. Um, these are generally cognitive behavioural therapy and mindfulness-based, which we know has um, positive impacts on people's body image. Image. And I think because Kit's there 24-7, freely available, a cute character that people seem to really be attracted by, um, mm. Kit's had uh, over 23,000 users in just over a year. Um, so we're really, really excited that people are benefiting from Kit and enjoying speaking with Kit. Oh, that's so fantastic. I've had a play of Kit, so I'm one of the 23,000. And, <laughs> and I would encourage all of our listeners to have to, to go online and have a play with Kit. We'll obviously have links um, on the website to Kit. Oh, thank but, you. Yeah, just go on Butterfly's website and you'll see a green pop-up there. And I think also to familiarise ourselves with um, what what he does, what he can do. So if we're asking patients about body image or if any of our listeners have kind of identified that maybe they could explore the issue a little bit further as well, Kit's a great place to start and then I guess seeking help and, and, and other resources as well. So Gemma, thank you so much for being on the show with us today to discuss negative body image and what it is and how significant an issue and impact it has on our lives and our relationships. And you've helped give us a hugely beneficial understanding of how society's expectations and social media play a role in it as well. I guess particularly what I loved was your focus on body function. So what does my body do? Like focusing on that experience of of what it feels like to do things with our body rather than what they look like and how we can better support people to build better body image for ourselves and for our patients. Thank you. Yeah, I think this is an area we all continue to work on. It's an evolving space and it's just so exciting to see the future directions in the field. And don't forget to, to check out Kit. So thanks everyone for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts and other resources on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr. Michelle Woolhouse and thanks for joining us. See you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Thank you.
The Bioceuticals clinical range has been developed exclusively for clinicians. This product range offers complex formulas, higher doses, and specific ingredients for specialised cases. Bioceuticals clinical infuses quality, credibility, innovation, and professionalism into an exclusive product range that meets the needs and demands of private clinicians. Visit bioceuticals.com.au to learn more.